all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com We're going to have a discussion today with um, individuals who are were working behind the scenes to get uh, Medal of Honor recipient Paris Davis the Medal of Honor, which he did receive uh, many, many years after Vietnam. And then also an interview with some guys, real patriots, who have been working to support uh, veterans in their time of need. It's a uh, Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund, and we talked to some of their board members. So listen in. Both of these are interesting stories. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today two special guests to talk about a recent Medal of Honor recipient, Colonel Paris Davis. And we're going to talk to the guys who uh, I always refer to these kind of guys as uh, Sherpas. They carried a lot of the heavy load up the hill to uh, get this accomplished, as, as did a whole team of people. But we have on Neil Thorne, an Army veteran and uh, researcher extraordinaire. Neil, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks, Jim. And we also have with him Jim Moriarty, a Marine veteran, uh, did three tours in Vietnam. He's an attorney working in the mass torts area, a lot of work with uh, veterans and military-related causes. He did a dozen years or so with the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation and finds himself uh, helping out where he can. Jim, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, thank you, Jim. It's good to be with you. Well, you guys got connected on this uh, project for uh, Colonel Paris Davis uh, in, in back in Vietnam 58 years ago. He was a captain um, involved with uh, the Green Berets and Special Forces. Uh, his heroics at uh, the Battle of Bong Son uh, really is what launched this uh, effort to have him recognized and receive the Medal of Honor. But, Neil, why don't you uh, give a brief description of uh, uh, Colonel Davis's exploits that uh, I think it was a 19-hour battle. Yeah. Um, so Colonel Davis was on his second tour in Vietnam in 1965. 
and he volunteered to go in uh, to Bong Song, which to that point um, had been under enemy control, and we had not been able to get a foothold there. Um, he moved into that area, created a civil civil irregular defense group, a CIDG group, um, of what they call rough puffs. So they were local inhabitants that were recruited into a small army. So he built an army there, um, along with his fellow Green Berets, their A-team. And their first action out was this Battle of Bong Song. And Colonel Davis led that action, um, engaged and devastated the enemy, and also saved his troops, who he was ordered to leave uh, his wounded at one point, and he refused to do so. Um, and it was a colonel who had ordered him to leave. And at that time, he was a captain, so he refused to, to leave his troops. Um, he went out and rescued, personally rescued three of them um, while engaging the enemy, while also coordinating air assets and uh, medevacs um, and artillery on the site. And it's just one of the, uh, if you read the accounts of the battle, it is just one of the most uh, uh, heroic actions um, I've seen. And if I understand it right, Jim uh, Moriarty, he was also injured during this battle. So he's not only recovering guys, he's doing well. He's being shot and injured, but again, won't leave the battlefield, even though told to. Is, do I have that right? Yeah, he was injured several times. He was hit with grenade fragments and lost the ability to use his trigger finger so he was forced to shoot his rifle with his pinky and he was shot in the leg and he still stayed in the fight well the the accounts of that battle uh right at that time noted the heroics here and uh, i should mention that uh, then captain uh, paris davis uh, was one of the first uh, African-American or black special forces officers uh, and serving in Vietnam at that time. And, and this is 1965-ish, so, you know, the country is still dealing with a lot of uh, racial issues. But uh, awards and decorations in the military are all about the, the next guy up the line, writing it up and sending it up. So, uh Neil, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, what happened in, in that 1965 period about write-ups and, and why it's 58 years later and, and we're only now talking about him being awarded the uh, Medal of Honor. First things uh, that you do when trying to recover or look at any of these medals and awards is FOIA all of the surrounding information. And the National Archives had what they called uh, the Paris Davis Medal of Honor packet. Well, we FOIA'd that and got it back, and it was not a not a 1965 Medal of Honor packet at all. Um, what it was was a 1969 hearing into his medals and awards and the Medal of Honor. Um, in that, in those documents, we also found official testimony given to this army hearing by his commander, Billy Cole, that he had indeed written him up for the Medal of Honor and had taken it to Nashrang with the 5th Group headquarters at that time. And also we found uh, supporting evidence that this was written up by his commander um, in 1965 interviews with the uh, reporter, Charlie Black, 
um, there are two instances of him mentioning that you know he'd written Colonel Davis. So that's that's what led to us discovering that this was uh, truly a lost award. That it had been created, the packet and, and paperwork had been assembled. It was put in at Natrang, and at that point, it started. It should have generated a first review, and multiple copies would have gone out. They would have gone to Saigon, they would have gone to St. Pac, and ultimately the Pentagon. And no copies were ever found. So that choke point of uh, that choke point at, at group headquarters at Nantrang, um was where we determined, you know, that it had been most likely trashed. Well, because you just don't misplace right, something like right. this. This is this is about the most important thing that's going up the chain at this point. And uh, yeah. you get to the point, I think, as a, an experienced researcher as you are, where, where something doesn't smell right at that point, does it? No, it doesn't. And and it's not even a small packet at that. It would have probably been at minimum 40 pages. Um, and even our recreated Medal of Honor packet was around 90-some. Well, this is this gets lost, quote-unquote, lost in the 1960s. <laughs> And then just sort of uh, goes away. Uh, nobody talks about it. Uh, how does uh, and Jim Moriarty? Why don't you jump in here? How do you how do you keep this alive? Uh, this issue alive for so long? I know you got involved about eight years ago, but you'd worked on some of these other things. And when Neil called you up and said, "Hey, uh, you want to put your talents to work here?" You said yes, but it had to be like, "Wait a minute, this has been a l- this has been." cold for decades well you uh, that's only partially true in 1969 uh there was an inquiry uh, billy cole who was a battalion commander was still alive at that time and he was pushing this from the get-go and there was uh, we found orders that they had been ordered to recreate the uh award package Nobody ever saw that award package again. And then in 1981, Billy Waugh, who is probably the most famous or the most notorious, depending on how you look at it, Special Forces CIA guy, who was one of the people who Paris saved, Billy Waugh submitted a a, um, letter not sworn to, that talked about Paris's heroics and and character, and he tried to keep it alive. And there were there was an army ranger, you know, there was a whole platoon of Sherpas, as you describe them, trying to keep this deal alive. But nobody really knew where the friction points were, where the obstacles were until Neil got involved in about 2014. Neil had been working on the Gary Michael Rose Medal of Honor uh, rising out of um, Operation Tailwind. And so Neil got involved in that with the team of, I guess, half a dozen mostly former Army guys that were trying to push the thing forward. And Neil turned out to be the most uh, knowledgeable experienced, aware of the regulations and the problem guy, and he jumped in with both feet and ended up 
really taken over the taken over the program because of his vast knowledge. That's when he shows up like a kitten on my doorstep, <laughs> uh, saying, uh, "Well, I got this little problem." Little sweet, sweet talked him right into it, didn't you, Neil? <laughs> yeah, you know, like a like a complete dumbass. I had completely forgotten about the don't volunteer for nothing. See, so he I was Army, that. you were Marine. You walked right into it. <laughs> I yeah, knew well, we. I knew it was time to call on the Marines. Well, Neil, Neil, this again. This is one of these things where you go like, it doesn't smell right, it doesn't feel right. Where, what happened? How do you lose two packages uh, of this size? And knowing the regulations, as you do, times your enemy on these because you're losing witnesses, you're losing certifications. Tell us about some of those hurdles. Well, we lost uh, uh, Sergeant Morgan was one of the men that was on it. He was killed three months after the action. Um, he was most likely one of the first uh, eyewitnesses. And we had Billy Wall. Billy Wall was still surviving. And we also had uh, the testimony of his commander, Billy Cole, who had the foresight to have his daughter um, notarize it, write it down and notarize it for him. Um, plus, we had all kinds of surrounding uh, supporting evidence, including those 1969 documents the National Archives are holding. And you uh, essentially recreated a package. It's not the original. It's not the second go-around. It's a third package, uh, if you will, for the Medal of Honor for Colonel Paris Davis. But no, how how do you get that? Okay, I got a bunch of documents here. How do how do I push that forward? Who is, is this? Where the connections help? Some um, generally, there's there's uh, everything that's required in a packet. So it's a DA form six three eight nomination for award, and it's got to be filled out perfectly. Uh, you have to have signatures of anybody in the chain of command or note. You know where they have, if they're deceased or when they have died. Um, you also have to have a, a proposed narrative, a proposed citation, eyewitness statements, supporting evidence. There's a whole checklist of, of parts that go into any medal and award packet. Um, also, the uh, uh, description of the action, the after-action reviews, uh, stuff like that. Um, so that's pretty general for any medal or award, any valid medal or award. Um, so once you get all that put together um, in, in a general order, along with a summary, that's when you need to find a member of Congress who is a pass-through. So this falls under the U.S. Code Title 10, Section 1130, which is a process for lost, missing, or downgrade medals and awards. So then we then went up to Capitol Hill to find someone who would not only pass it through, but we were also looking for somebody who would uh, be a champion of it as well. Um, we found some – it's no problem finding somebody to pass it through. Um, and we got in Senator Kane's and Warner's offices to do that for us. And then it's a matter of following up with Fort Knox, which is the awards and decorations branch, the first gatekeeper, um, making sure they got it, making sure they understand it, making sure that everything is complete. Um, and – a, a, a first kickback is almost guaranteed with anything because that's that's kind of them doing their due diligence um, 
and then you address that. So it's it's constantly putting together the packet, getting the packet submitted, making sure it's in the channel, and then babysitting it. And this is really a labor of love for the team that's doing this. This is, uh, is. time that uh, Jim Moriarty's putting in, this time Neil Thorne's putting in, and other people are putting in trying trying to advance this. And you were in, you were involved in it for nine years. Other people had been in maybe longer, but but really the work the, over the eight nine years. Uh, is there a point at which you say, "Hey, this is this is going nowhere," or uh, you just have to stay on it and believe that in the end you'll be successful? We knew we were in the right from the beginning, and we knew that that injustice had been done, and it was still existing. So the thought of giving up didn't occur to us. So let me put this to Jim Moriarty, who probably has to dance a little less than Neil does on on, a, on sensitive issues, because Neil's, as they say, this nationally renowned uh, researcher, and uh, you know Jim's a lawyer and a marine. So you you knew you were in the right on this because there was clearly some biases going on uh, back in the '60s, back in the '80s, even into the here in the. 2000s, the, the 2020. I mean, do you confront those directly? Uh, I know as a trial lawyer, a mass tort trial lawyer, you like to confront things directly. But how do you navigate this to advance it, but confront the biases? Jim, you're asking a pretty sophisticated question. Well, the I'm, go, I'm going I'm to a sophisticated guy who grew up in Texas. You you can deal with this. Uh, I know you can. There's. Um, I lived during the 60s. I spent two and a half years in Vietnam. I know what the military was like, and I know what the United States was like in terms of the prevalence of racism in the 60s, in the 70s, and the 80s, and indeed today. So the fact that the first package disappeared could have been an accident. The fact that the second package disappeared, now it's no longer an accident. It's sort of like the Twin Towers. When one fell, maybe it was a navigational problem. When they both went down, it was a deliberate act. Neil and I gnashed our teeth about this because I didn't want to make this case about racism, but also wasn't going to take no for an answer. So... We pussyfooted around the issue when we redid the package in uh, 2015 and 2016, where we didn't hang our hats on the racism issue, but we tried to let the, the reader figure out for themselves what, it, what had happened. Certainly, certainly. Uh, in 2000. 16 and, and 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 it was a relenting unrelenting battle uh i was serving on the board of directors of the marine corps heritage foundation richard spencer uh was secretary of the navy jim mattis was secretary of defense john kelly who i worked for uh was initially homeland security and then he goes over to chief staff of the white house I had the best connections in the administration that I could possibly have, and I was hitting on every single one of them because the idea that this man 
was not going to be awarded the Medal of Honor for what he did was simply not in my vocabulary. And what I did, I went to went up to Mattis at the, the awards dinner, and I had these two chapters from Billy Cole's memoirs that tell, they really tell the history of the Vietnam War. Um, Schwarzkopf's in there, um, Peter Arnett's in there, uh, John Wayne's in there, Barry Sadler, the legend of the Green Beret. I mean, it, these two chapters, which are only cover a small part of the war, really were core history of the war. And Billy Cole tells this wonderful story about how extraordinary Paris's courage was. And, um, you know, my attitude was anybody's got an IQ over 75 that reads this is going to realize this guy definitely needs to get the Medal of Honor. Well, Neil successfully pushed the, 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 uh, the award out of Knox. The initial uh, naysayer was Fort Knox. And we got it out of there. In fact, we later learned that the, uh, I think it was Ray Epps, who was the acting Secretary of the Army in 2017 or 2018, sent it out of the Army to the uh, Secretary of Defense's office. And that turned out to be where the real hurdle was. There was a, what I would, there were two confounding facts. Confounding fact number one is Billy Waugh has spent way too many years with the CIA and sometimes his stories don't match. And Billy, in his 1981 letter, which was turned into an affidavit in, uh, I think the early teens where Billy swears that, that uh, Paris saved his life as he did. Um, Billy comes out with a couple of so-called books. Uh, one of them was um, Stalking the Jackal or something like that. And in these books, he tells the Battle of Bomb Song where he sort of set out to be the controlling hero, and he claims some guy named Reinberg saved his life. Now, so the, there's two confounding facts. Uh, one of them is that Billy Waugh says at one point in time, Paris Davis saved my life, but at another point in time, Reinberg saved his life. That was confounding fact number one. Confounding fact number two is that in 1969, four years after the battle, Reinberg is awarded the DSC. And in his DSC citation, it says that he saved the life of a soldier. Now, keep in mind, there's 200 rough puffs uh, out there, the South Vietnamese CIDG soldiers. Um, and there were four Americans. I, uh, the, the Silver Star Citation, the interim Silver Star Citation that was issued in 1965 for Paris, specifically credits him for saving the life of his team sergeant. 
and his team sergeant is Billy Waugh. So in my view, there was no confounding evidence except that Billy Waugh was having a hard time keeping his story straight, but there was so much supporting evidence, Billy Cole's memoirs, other witnesses' statements, uh, Billy Waugh's earlier sworn affidavit, that I thought this this Reinberg business was just all bullshit. I thought, you know, nobody in their right mind would think that there's a conflict with who who parasade because his very silver star citation says it was his team sergeant. There was only one team sergeant on the mission. And what what really proved to be interesting throughout this eight-year battle as I focused in on finding the, the crew chiefs from the helicopters, finding the pilots from the helicopters, finding the remaining living witnesses from the battle, we literally, and to tell you the the length we went to to find supporting evidence, but they, uh, I think there was a New York Times story where there was a fact pilot who was describing his part in the mission, and the guy's name was Speedy Gonzalez. So, <laughs> so here, here's all the facts I know about Speedy Gonzalez. He's in the Air Force. He flies a Ford Air Controller aircraft. And his name is Speedy Gonzalez. Like, I'm supposed to do something with that? <laughs> well, start, start searching. Computer researcher about not having the slightest clue where I'm going to find this guy. And all I was doing was just bitching. I wasn't making a request. Well, I go to bed and I wake up the next morning and I've got Speedy Gonzalez's name and address and phone number on my email, and it turns out he's a retired Air Force pilot who lives over in San Antonio, and I jump in the car and drive over to interview him. Oh, my goodness. And I, <laughs> I tracked down some of the Huey pilots. You know, the, the pushback, part of the pushback we got is, well, we need more living eyewitnesses. And I'm sitting there going, you son of a bitches have waited 50 years until almost everybody's dead, and now you want more living eyewitnesses? As it, as it turned out, the Reinberg problem was the core problem because there was, in my view, a single individual in the Department of Defense's office who took the position that Reinberg's DSC trumped everything. Now, keep in mind, <coughs> Neil and I have talked to more living witnesses and now deceased witnesses who knew about that mission than any other two people on the planet. And not nobody has ever said anything about Reinberg ever saving anybody. Not Colonel Cole, not not anybody else on the mission, not Ron Dice, nobody. Not Paris Davis, not this nineteen we we actually tracked down the hour long Phil Donahue interview with Ron Dice and and, uh, and Paris and where Paris tells the whole story about how this deal went down and you can't watch that without concluding there's a guy who was there who knows what happened and who's describing what happened. Now of course you can't 
be awarded a Medal of Honor on your own testimony. You got to be, be awarded a Medal of Honor based on other people's testimony. But it was certainly cooperative evidence, and and Ron Dice was a, a direct eyewitness to important facts. But go ahead. I, I wanted to come back to this. How do you break this loose? Because this thing got lost a couple of times, then it got hung up at Fort Knox for a period of years, then it got hung up in the Secretary of Defense's Office of Manpower and Reserve Affairs, for, apparently for three years. Then it got hung up in, um, uh, I think, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. How <laughs> Every time it gets hung up, how do you bust it loose, Neil? Well, uh, I, I want to answer that question because I was there when the page was blank. We were stopped dead in our tracks in the fall of 2020. We had done everything we knew. We had gone to everybody that had any pull. We had found more witnesses. We had found more facts. And we were up against the wall. Now, we weren't quitting, but we also weren't succeeding. And uh, Chris Miller gets appointed acting Secretary of Defense. And I get a call from now Major General Kevin Leahy, who says, look, Miller's a Pittsburgh guy. He's a good guy. Uh, you know, you've been pushed. I had been pushing to have my son awarded uh, a medal for valor for his combat when he was killed, which the Army wouldn't grant because he was supposedly working for somebody besides the Army. But uh, Leahy calls me, <clears throat> and so I said, yeah, let, let's go do something. But, oh, by the way, while we're there asking for some relief, we need to ask for some relief for Paris Davis. So Leahy calls me back the next day, says, I've talked to Miller. Miller's a good guy. He's on it like stink on you know what. And... Um, He's going to appoint one of his key aides to work with you on the um, Congressional Medal of Honor for Paris Davis. So he assigns this former JAG officer to work with me. We jumped back in it with both feet, and this time we confronted the racial issue head on. Uh, it was a, um, I had had enough. It was, I just do, don't want to hear we lost the package twice, but we have no idea what that relates to. Right. Well, right. you know, that's just nonsense. That, that is so incredible. So we jumped in. We did a multimedia presentation. We And by this time, there was a team of thousands on the Sherpa team, I get a call from uh, one of my buddies in San Antonio or in Houston, who's a former fifth grade guy, and he's talked a game company executive in Great Britain into doing graphics for us. So, for example, one of the, the key points that we had was that Paris had, had saved another soldier's life two months before Long Song and had been awarded a Soldier's Medal. I think he's one of only six. Neil would know better four. than I do. 
Yeah. Uh, six people have been awarded Soldiers Medal and Medals for Valor. Um, so he's, they're doing all these graphics for us. We track down photographs from Ron Dice and other people so we can recreate the mission. And what we also did was we did an overlay of what was going on in the United States at exactly the same time that Paris Davis was so heroically serving our country. Right, right. Um, the the riots in Selma, the, the that famous bridge that they just had the 60th or 58th anniversary of. So we confronted it head on, and we did this this multimedia presentation, which if you haven't seen it, I would certainly encourage you to see it. And we put this whole package together in about six weeks. And then uh, Chris Miller, before uh, Trump went out of office, issued an order that the the uh, Department of Defense was to do a review of this whole process, basically to answer the question, why hadn't this been done a long time ago? And so um, that's what busted it loose. And then the, the really weird deal is that after Trump left office and after the Biden administration came in, then we continued to get a year and a half of pushback. Many Medal of Honor recipients are, and they are humble men who have done extraordinary things. But but they they you know served. They knew what their duty was, and they went way beyond it. Um, but getting the award uh, is not about necessarily about uh, their individual recognition or rewards. It's really for the community. And we were talking about this earlier, Jim Moriarty, on the. Uh, getting purple hearts for for guys and and it's really about uh, what this will mean to Paris Davis's family, uh, the African American community, the Special Forces community, that much larger recognition that uh, the Medal of Honor uh, provides to folks. And so now you've heard the backstory on how Paris Davis finally got recognized after multiple lost packages for his heroics in the Medal of Honor. This is, these are amazing stories that we're able to bring to you on Veterans Radio, and it's because of the sponsors like National Veterans Business Development Council. Uh, it has some upcoming events that you may want to participate in, so go to nvbdc.org and check that out. Uh, if you're a veteran-owned business, you may want to get certified for all the valid uh, reasons that they talk about. We'll have a few words from sponsors and then back to talk about and listen to an interview with Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. 
We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today a couple of the board members of the Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund, a Michigan-based organization. It's a 501c3, been around for a while, and we're glad to have Chris Cornelius as a board member on with us. Uh, Chris is a veteran and actually one of the co-founders of the fund. And we have the president of the fund, Robert Grimaldi, on as well. Both these guys have been involved with the fund for quite a number of years, and, and uh, it was time to come back around and talk about what they've been doing over the years and some of the success stories and upcoming events. Chris, welcome to Veterans Radio. Jim, thanks for having us. Rob, welcome to Veterans Radio. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. Thanks for having us. And, uh, you know, for all those who, who don't know, Jim has been a staunch supporter of veterans and, and all their uh, concerns and issues for many, many years. So thank you for all the work you've done over the years. Well, thank you. Uh, Chris, I'm going to start with you because you were there at the beginning in 2006. Talk to us about what you saw, what the group saw as the need, and what the mission and purpose of Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund is. Well, when we started, um, you, you know, the, it was early 2006, like you had mentioned, and, and um, one of the issues that were happening at the time there was that uh, the time that it would take for veterans to get their uh, VA claims awarded was very long. And, and we were also dealing with something I would, I would consider um, new to the VA was uh, because of the IED explosions was uh, traumatic brain injuries. So we, we kind of recognized really quickly that there's a, there's a gap there. Um, and, and other things too, it's not just uh, the TBI, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer than, um, than what it what uh, what it should be for a veteran to get some help. So we just decided we're going to step together as a community and and help out Michigan veterans. Well, one of the things that I always found amazing about this board and this effort was it is a all volunteer effort and it really involves the business community. Rob, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, who gets involved and who helps out with Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund? Yeah, and you hit it on the head. It's an all-volunteer organization, which, um, you know, from from the first days that Chris and the other uh, founders uh, created Fallen with the Soldier Fund, it, it was always going to be about direct impact on the lives of the veterans and their families, and it wasn't going to be about any of the other, you know, things. Uh, overhead costs were always going to be kept very, very low, Um you know, to this day, as much as we've grown and, and, and added things, we're still about 97 cents of every dollar. It's a little higher than that, but goes directly into the hands of a veteran in need, uh, as opposed to overhead expenses. We have zero paid staff. So we're a working board. We've got 15 board members. Um, and, and that's, that's what drives everything we do. So when, um, when you see a fast response to a veteran, that's a board member that's working hard to make sure that we do all of our diligence and get things, um, all the boxes checked, and then get the money out to the veteran in the way that it needs to go. When you see an event that we put on, we're not paying somebody to do that. That's us out there doing the hard work. So, you know, the board members just come really from across, you know, the, the spectrum, just people that believe in helping uh, veterans in need. When it comes to things like corporate sponsors and, you know, individual sponsors and volunteers and just all those kind of other people that are out there helping us and supporting us, that runs the gambit too. You know, it can be, you know, sometimes it's organizations that you may think would have an interest in veterans. 
um, and, and helping those veterans that are in need. But it's also, you know, that company up the road that you may or may not have done business with, but, um, you know, they, they have, for whatever reason, uh, the desire to help veterans. So that's been one of the areas that's been kind of fun to watch is just all the different people that get involved uh, and help and all the different stories. You know, people know uh, veterans, right, within their lives, whether it's a, it's a brother or father, um, whether it's somebody up the road, um, that served and, you know, hopefully none of them have any of the issues that we deal with, but we run across those too, you know, uh, you know, a kid up the road that got hurt. And I remember the difficulties he had, uh, when he returned and, and had this injury and they love that groups like us are out there helping. So, you know, we just really run the gambit across everybody here in Michigan that's, that's really willing to help. And then we get a lot of people that realize what we do is important, but also the way we do it is so efficient um, and the fact that, you know, again, going back to that direct impact, they give us a dollar, it's going where they want it to go. Uh, it's not going to, you know, parties or expenses or overhead or advertising or marketing. It's going to the veterans. So that part really helps us gain um, supporters and keep supporters. Well, I think one of the things that has always uh, worked well for Fallen Wounded Soldiers Fund, uh, Chris, is that direct support? You, there's not a whole lot of middlemen. There's not you don't you don't give money to agencies who give it to somebody else. You you really have a model that lets you get, when necessary, the dollars right in the hands of the veteran. Can you talk about how that works? Sure. Yeah, uh, we we have uh, a website uh, that any veteran can go on to, or a family member or even a friend and, and contact us and say, here, this is what's going on. And, uh, or there's a phone number they can call as well on the website. And what happens is that goes right to our, uh, our distribution committee and that the distribution committee chair, um, will call the veteran back generally within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, from there, she gathers all the, uh, the pertinent information. And then every Monday that committee meets and that's when they make a determination and uh, and from there the checks are cut that week. So you're you're looking at cases many times in less than a week. They're getting uh, distributions. So it's yeah. it's it's as quick as it can be. Yeah, and just to kind of fill in there, it it's I think people don't really understand how direct uh, we interact with veterans. But Chris is right. They make a phone call into the website. It's an 800 number, but it rings directly to our executive director, uh, Dr. Lynn Phillips, and. You know, typically we measure response in days, not weeks or months, but really it, it rarely goes past a full day where we haven't had contact with the veteran, and it rarely goes past a week where we haven't done the sufficient amount of diligence. And we take that part very serious. You know, you can call and say, hey, I'm a veteran, uh, and I have this injury, and I have this need. Um, and we just can't take that at face value, right? We have to kind of corroborate all of those things and do the so we have to figure out okay this is in fact the veteran they have engaged with the va um you know they do have the injuries that they stated they were honorably discharged uh and then we have to go back and figure out that each of these bills um or whatever it is that they need help with are legitimate and then on top of all that we can't just write a check and hand it out to a veteran um, you know, because we can't ensure that if, if we're paying five different bills, that all five of those would go. 99% of the time, it probably would, but we want to be very careful with the money that comes into us um, from other donors, and we want them to feel comfortable knowing that it's going to the right spot. So that means 
we're paying bills direct. And again, we can't wait a week or a month in many cases. Sometimes it has to be done right away. So this process is really fast. And, you know, people don't realize even the end of the process, the paying of the checks, we've got an amazing treasurer, Lynn Minish, who, you know, every night is, is out there making sure that, that lights are kept on and things like that. Um, because you got to pay these bills. Very few veterans come to us and say, Hey, I've got like in six months, I got this bill that's got to be paid. Um, you know, they come to us because they've exhausted every avenue they can. They, they've, they've gone to friends and family. They've exhausted all their savings. They've run up credit card bills just trying to keep their heads above water. That's when they come to us. They don't have anywhere else to turn. Uh, so these things have to happen unbelievably fast. And I, I think of all the things that our organization does, that's what I'm most proud of is that the undying dedication to making sure these things get done and get done fast so that we really are helping people in a way that I think people can't understand how unbelievably fast, but also how difficult that is because we all have jobs and families and obligations. Um, you know, Chris and I both have sat, you know, at different times in the distribution committee. That's a weekly call, 9 o'clock on a Monday. The last thing I want to do on a Monday is listen to some of these cases because, to be totally honest, they're they're not – you know, they're not fluffy kind of like feel-good cases, right? These are all people having issues, going through a hard time. And sometimes we have to say no. Uh, they don't fit the mission, and we do our best to find places that, that do fit. And that doesn't feel great. So it's not the best way to end your Monday night, but it's an essential function. So, um, you know, it's it's to me, that's what I'm most proud of is the dedication and the speed by which we do things. Well, and Chris, uh, Rob touched on it a little bit, and we're talking to Chris Cornelius, who's a uh, co-founder and board member of Fallen Wounded Soldiers Fund and, and its president, Robert uh, Grimaldi. But, but Chris, he touched on it. A lot of this is just basic needs. I mean, you're helping a guy out, generally a guy, women I'm, I'm assuming as well, but, but you're helping out with basic needs. Talk about those basic needs. Well, I can give you a quick example of just one case, if you'd like. Go right ahead. So we'll just call him Mr. L. Uh, so Mr. L came to us years ago, but this is a very common scenario for us even to this date. Um, so he's 100% VA rated right now or uh, service connected right now. He was in an ID explosion, uh, suffered PTSD, TBI, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injuries, and uh Need to help with the mortgage. Uh, they were facing evictions. So some of the needs, and this is where it gets really sad, is that um, diapers. He just he needed diapers. He needed baby food, food, and electricity. And at the time he called, he was using uh, old T-shirts as diapers for his kids. So um, he received uh, the, the VA rating, but the check hadn't started, um, and the military pay had stopped. Um, it was 18 months that he was without income. So we took care of all his bills. We took care of him, his family, his kids. And and that's what we're still doing today. And and these are, as I say, just sort of basic needs, the stuff the rest of us don't maybe think too much about, and that is, you know, food, clothing, shelter over your head. Hey, if your car breaks down, you can't get to work or you can't get to the medical clinic anymore. I mean, this is really basic stuff, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, I mean, it's rare that somebody comes to us for something that's frivolous. It, it's happened over the years, and we, we, that's not our, our role. Um, it's, it's the very, like you said, basic things. Um, sometimes people come to us, they're homeless, um, and so, it, you know, we, we try to get them into, we, we had a, a, a woman and her daughter uh, just a couple weeks ago. They were living in their car, um, and then trying to find shelters here and there. And neither one of those are unbelievably safe places. 
for a young woman and her daughter. Um, and so we were able to find, uh, you know, temporary um, housing for them, if you will, in, in, in a hotel. And then uh, we're able to get them housing after that. But, you know, basic things like that. Um, but, but then it does go into things like, you know, just trying to get assistance for, for food or for keeping the lights on, um, you know, mortgages. So I can't tell you how many times we, we get involved where somebody is two or three months behind on their rent and they've got an eviction notice. Uh, we wish they would have come to us a month earlier so we would have more time to sort of work through things. But again, they, they never come to us until they just can't, uh, you know, cope with what's going on and keep up. And so it's never for anything frivolous. It's, it's almost always for the very basics of the basics, cars, uh, rent, food, diapers, formula for the baby, things like that. And, and, you know, unfortunately, with inflation and, and all those the, the the pinch we all feel at the grocery store, you know, veterans aren't immune to that, right? They 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 have the same issues we have, um, right? So prices are going up across the board, so that hurts too when you know they're on assistance of whatever level, um, and so you know those things take a bigger bite out of the budget, which means there's less money available to keep the lights on or whatever it may be, um, you know, during COVID, we had a lot of uh, veterans that just weren't set up to have you know, three kids at home on their current Wi-Fi. They maybe didn't have the equipment or the, the um, you know, the available uh, network to, to sort of log into, right? So those kind of things came up. We certainly weren't prepared for that um, in the sense that we didn't think that was coming. Nobody did during COVID. But, you know, we had to then sort of pivot and respond to different kinds of needs. Um, but but those are the things, Just it's just keeping their heads above water, keeping them uh, you know, able to be in homes, keeping lights on, things like that. I will note one thing that we've done uh, really in just the last couple of years that's been exciting is we opened a veterans uh, housing center uh, in Canton, Michigan, in a partnership with Canton. So, you know, again, keeping overhead unbelievably low, um, but but having the ability to get the veterans into a housing center, but also to have a community of veterans that have gone through the same issues they've had um, and a place to meet and talk to other veterans you know, in, 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 in an area where everybody's been in that same exact spot so they can talk through issues. I, can, I can't tell a veteran what they're feeling. I've never been through what they're going through. But other veterans that have, they can have a different conversation. So those kind of things have been very helpful, especially post-COVID era. Um, but, but you're exactly right, Jim. It's, it's never anything frivolous. It's always just basic, basic needs. Now, this uh, we're going to reach through veteransradio.org here. We're going to reach nationally uh, an audience that's going to hear for Fallen and Wounded Soldiers Fund for the first time. But, Chris, why don't we explain in your mission, what's your geographic territory? How does a, how does a veteran, if you will, qualify for reaching out? So for us, they're either a Michigan resident uh, deployed or they are a, or they're a current Michigan resident. So that's and a veteran honorably discharged. And then, you know, what we do is like Rob was saying, we do help out with immediate needs. And if you don't mind, I, I just do, I want to include one other thing was that we also help uh, when there's a, an injured, um, and you, you were on the board at the time when we've had some injured uh, uh, veterans, uh, they were deployed uh, and something happened. And so we, we help bring that family together, incur that cost for them and say, hey, we're here. You just focus on getting better. Uh, bring the loved ones around that you need, and, and we'll take care of that. We we had a soldier that was uh, out at Fort Custer, two soldiers, and a tree fell on, on them, and one was very, very uh, – was injured very badly, and we helped his family heal. 
And then, you know, the real nice thing is that, like, with Mr. L, he, he called up probably, I think it's probably 12 years later, and gave us a great thank you. You know, uh, he, he left a voice message that was just beautiful, thanking us from the bottom of his heart. So the impact that we have on these folks, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's life-changing for them. Oh, absolutely. And I want to give some, uh, you can't do this work without financial resources. And Rob, uh, I'd like you to give some uh, shout outs to some of the sponsors who've been helping, uh, the, the fund all these years to make sure that you can do the, the very good work we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. There, I mean, you're starting to get into, there's just so many of them. Um, some of the, some of the larger sponsors, um, and, and that's called more well known nationally. I mean, General Motors, GM. Here in Detroit has been a huge sponsor of us for quite a few years. Um, you know, you get into a lot of uh, other companies like, you know, Aero Strategies that, that you know, Jeff Styers has been a supporter since day one, I think, uh, and still is a supporter. Um, you know, Chris, as a as, as a head of our corporate uh, sponsors, I don't know if you want to jump in, maybe some of the ones that from day one through now, but I mean, there's, you know, if you go to the website, just as, as an aside, they're all kind of listed there as well. But that that's the great thing about this organization is, there's been so many people from across the board, um, and a lot of them have been sponsors, right? Chris, back me up here, 16, 17 years in some cases. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we still have some of the original board members. We had some of the original sponsors. We've had uh, major pharmaceuticals, uh, Cardinal uh, Pharmaceuticals, Iafrady, great, great supporter. Um, we've, we have Arrow, as you mentioned, uh, Trilamed has been a supporter for years and you know i feel bad for just not rattling off more no yeah, we, no we it's, an, it's, it's an unfair question but i but i uh bring it up because if you want to help out if you want to help veterans in this direct reach out approach then you got to help with the finances and the sponsors do that but also participating in events and one of the reasons we're talking is you have some upcoming events um rob you want to talk about those events yeah, and you're you're exactly right that we can never raise enough money, right? Because when we raise, we you know there, there's always need out there. And I know people might say, well, you know, the war is over. We're not we're not seeing it in the news. But the kind of problems we're seeing today are the ones that one are a little harder to diagnose sometimes. You know, things like traumatic brain injury and things like that aren't always the easiest um, for 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 you know the the physicians and the doctors to diagnose, especially when they're longer term. Uh, issues, but also, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of, you know, again, those, those, those debilitating injuries that are just building up. Um, and so, so the needs actually bigger than it, than it was. And it's for longer time, right? Each that we're helping tends to be a little bit longer than before. So, you know, we do have two events coming up on September 11th is our annual, uh, September 11th remembrance golf outing. Um, and then, uh, and that'll be held at Shenandoah Golf Course here in, in, in the, the Detroit, Michigan area. Uh, and then April 19th is our annual gala. Um, and so that, you know, we typically get a good crowd there anywhere from, well, we sell out. That's always the goal is to sell out of, of wherever we're going to be. Um, and either one of those, um, you, you can find on our website, fwsf.org. Um, and if you're unable to attend or if you, you know, listening now and you like the mission, you like what we're doing, but you live someplace outside of Michigan, um, you know, it's easy to donate as well. Uh, there's a donate button on that front page. When you first get to the landing page of the website, you can click there and um, that's a pretty easy process as well. Um, but any, any of those three certainly helps. And if you're in the area, absolutely would love to have you out at, at the golf outing coming up in a few weeks. 
uh, like I said, September 11th. And, and you know, you, you can meet some of the board members, but you can also meet some of the people we help um, that will be there at the event. Um, and, and then just learn more about the organization. Happy to sit down with anybody that's there and kind of walk them through what we do. Certainly glad to have the opportunity to talk to Rob Grimaldi, president, and Chris Cornelius, board member and co-founder of Fallen Wounded Soldiers Fund, to get a little bit more about what they do. Check us out at veteransradio.org and or Facebook. We always need your financial support as well. And uh, Dale will be back next week with more stories and more interesting things to talk about. We always try to bring you stuff that uh, maybe you don't hear somewhere else or you're not going to get in the general press. So uh, we search high and low for interesting stories and people to talk about and certainly getting a chance to talk about what goes on behind the scenes in obtaining a Medal of Honor, as was done for uh, Paris Davis is really interesting. So uh, I'm Jim Fossone with Veterans Radio, and until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.